We are live from the great state of Tennessee. I'm your host, Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranoid, the podcast where we break down conspiracy theories and unsolved mysteries and separate fact from fiction. And we are back. It was a nice little hiatus. A lot of people were hitting me up wondering where I was. I know probably should have gave you a heads up, but life happens. Um, New job positions, new job hours, new life, new stress. Um, Just needed to step away for a minute, get things together, find a new time to fit the podcast in. Um, But we're back. We're here. And hopefully I can get back in a rhythm because it has been about I think five or six weeks. Um, So hopefully you're listening here on this Monday, but, um, or this week, like I said, I know I kind of disappeared on y'all, but life happens. Appreciate all the people, you know, sometimes you think you're just talking to yourself when you do this, then you have people messaging you, asking you where you are, what's going on. So kind of makes me feel like I'm not just talking to myself. People actually do listen, do care what I have to say. So like I said, we got a nice setup going, a nice system going. So I got to have some time, do some digging. Hopefully you enjoy the new intro. Um, got some new ideas um, to kind of take this to the level that it needs to be getting to now. So super excited, super to happy to be back. Um, hopefully we'll never disappear for that long again. But let's go ahead and jump right back into the story for today. So here's the crazy thing about these cases. We talk a lot about a lot of brutal stuff, a lot of unsolved mystery, a lot of true crime, a lot of honestly murder, death. And that in itself is terrible. And most of the time, these people want to, they commit the crime for whatever reason, they want to disappear and somehow go live a normal life. But then other times we have these evil people that don't want to fade away. They want to do the opposite of fade away. They want to make sure that they're being chased. I don't know if it's just pure evil or the adrenaline or they've just never had attention in their life. So this is their way of getting it. But when you have those people out there that commit crimes and literally enjoy the chase. And most of these are copycat crimes. It all starts, like I said, I wouldn't say this is the very first person to ever do this. I highly doubt it. But the most mainstream case is definitely this one where this person commits crimes and is basically the, the craziest part about this is not only are they enjoying the chase and encouraging the chase in a way, which we'll discuss if you don't know, this person told them his identity. He told them things about him. And in one time he even told them his name, but he did it through what they call a cipher, a code that the police needed to crack. Like he literally said, Hey, if you can figure out this puzzle, you will literally have my name. You will literally have my address. You will have everything that you need. That's how much this dude enjoyed the chase. But for years and years and years, no one could crack this case. Um, his crime spree, from what we know, only lasted a year. But this happened in 1968. And up until last week, which we'll get into, this supposedly was unsolved throughout this entire time. Now, tons, tons, tons of people have had theories. The ciphers are public. You can go look at it. Some people have claimed to have decoded them. Then we have some people saying that their dad was the Zodiac killer. I mean, there's just so many different things that we'll get into. But like I said, this originally was, when I first started this, 
was an unsolved mystery, but at the current moment, we are claiming that this is solved, which we'll get into. But regardless, this is the most popular true crime case in America. Um, a lot of the ones I've covered are pretty popular. The Black Dolly is pretty popular, but there is an actual movie, like big time Hollywood movie about this case. Like this is easily probably the most popular true crime case. It's honestly crazy that it took me so long to get into this one. But like I said, we'll get to the end. They claim to be it solved. It seems to be clear cut, but you just never know. But it all starts on a cold night on December 20th, 1968. This is the story of the Zodiac Killer. So like I said, it's December 20th of 1968. We are in a small town called Benicia. I'm sorry if I'm from California and I said that wrong, but whatever. Some small town in California, um, basically in the Bay Area, north of San Francisco. And we got um, we got two kids. Um, first kid is David Arthur Faraday, who is 17 years old, a senior at Vallejo High School. And we have Betty Lou Jensen, who was 16 years old and was a junior at another high school. Um, both really good, bright kids. Both had dreams of going to college and doing big things. And basically, they're just kids going out on a date. And they're doing their normal thing that kids do. Um, unfortunately, they chose the wrong day to do this. But kids lie. I mean, we all did it. We all said we were going somewhere to usually to the movies or something and we did it. I mean, it happens. But so basically from what we know, this was the night the two basically they like they were talking courting whatever you call it. This was the night that they were going to make their relationship status official. Like this was they you know that big day old. You know, the guy's got to ask or is she going to be, you know, are you going to be my girlfriend? blah blah blah. Um so David comes to pick up Betty. Um, he tells Betty's parents that he's taking her to a Christmas concert at the local high school, which is only about three blocks away from Betty's home. Um, the father basically agrees, but they have to be back by 11 a.m. So they take off in David's mother's 1961 Rambler station wagon. Um, they stop by to visit a friend for a short period of time, um, go out to eat at the nearby diner. Then after they got their little dinner, they were but according to their parents, we're supposed to go to this Christmas concert, you know, right down the home, right down the home, just something easy, simple. But they did not do that. They went down this road. Um, I think it's called Lake Herman Road. It's a long winding road. You know, it's a small town. Everybody's got those little back roads with no street lights, empty, nothing out there, super creepy. It's basically one of those. Um at about 10, 15 p.m., David parks his station wagon on a gravel turnout near the lake itself. Um, from what we know, I think this was the what they call, quote, lover's lane. Anyone, I mean, if you're old enough to remember those days, if you watch like Grease or any movies from like the 60s or even 70s, that was your thing. I mean, those, you know, you go, especially in California, you know, you got the big lookouts and everything and you park your car somewhere super safe, turn the lights off and whatever happens, happens. And that's basically what this situation was. So he takes her to Lover's Lane basically to ask him, ask her, Betty, to be his girlfriend. 
And from all we know, you know, it, it was going good as a normal night. About 11 o'clock, a married couple drove by, saw the Rambler, didn't notice anything specific. Then um, a red Ford truck drove by with had two raccoon hunters. Uh, I think their names were Robert and Frank. Um, they were both carrying rifles and they were just doing their normal hunting. At about 1110, the raccoon hunters get back to their truck and get ready to head out on their way back. They noticed that the Rambler, the kid's car, is still parked there, but didn't see any other people. So that's at 1110. At about 1114, give or so a few minutes, a man named James Owen was heading to work as an overnight shift supervisor. He recalls seeing that station wagon parked in the turnout, but he also noticed that another vehicle was parked next to it. Not anything unusual just that there was two cars there so he described the first vehicle as a station wagon which is what it was but couldn't give many details about the second vehicle um he did say it was unusual some some small unusual things about it but i guess mainly because there's usually only one car in lover's lane or whatever it is he said it's unusual for there to be two cars kind of like i guess a courtesy i would assume that if one car's there then you don't stop there so that's at 11.14. Then at around 11.20, a woman named Stella Burgess is heading down Lake Herman Road from her nearby property. She had her mom in a car with her and was heading out to pick up her teenage son. Um, as she rounds the corner, she sees the gravel turnout where David and Betty had now been for about an hour. And this is an exact quote. She states that there were no cars going in either direction when she was on the road. When she arrived at the scene, headlights picked up the car and she observed a boy that looked like he had fallen out of the door. The girl was laying on her side facing the road. She only saw one car at the scene. It looked like a rambler. She states she drove 60 or 70 miles an hour to head to the police to report it. When she saw the police car, she honked her horn and basically attracted lights. That's just a direct quote. So the two police officers on site are Captain Daniel Pitta and Officer William Warner. Um, they were at the a gas station a couple of miles away. So she, she sees them and they follow her back to the gravel turnout. And that is where they arrive. And this whole story of the Zodiac begins. So the officers arrive on scene and it's a pretty brutal scene from what they can gather. It looks like David had been shot once in the face um, from what um, it appeared to be from close range. Basically, from what they can gather, he was he got out. the He was shot while he was in the process of getting out the car. Um, he was only shot once. It appears that Betty Lou Jensen got the worst of it. Now, what's interesting is when the witnesses saw her, they said that she was laying on her side by the car. Well, when the police officers got there, they had found her body about 30 feet away from the vehicle and she was face down. Whereas the witness said that she was by the car um, laying on her side. So this told investigators that Betty was still alive when Stella drove by. Obviously, Stella didn't know she did the right thing and went to the police. But Betty was still alive at this moment that they were first found. Um, like I said, David was shot one time, um, basically, I think, in the face. But Betty was, after autopsy, this wasn't known originally, 
But after the autopsy, um, she was shot five times in total, all from behind. Three bullets had hit her upper back and two hit her lower back. Um, How she even was able to survive for 10, 15 minutes after that is amazing, knowing what we know in the autopsy. But the thing that is the most concerning to the police officers is that her purse was still there. Um, the bodies had not been moved, so it wasn't like they were trying to hide anything, and nothing was missing at all. Um, so robbery was eliminated um, as a motive. So it seemed to detectives that n- this was just a random shooting for unknown reasons, which obviously we'll start, we'll, they'll get into. But that's the disturbing part. It wasn't just a random robbery. This was just a shoot and drive away with no kind of intentions, which is very rare back then. There was always usually a reason for these kind of things. So honestly, like I said, I've done, the only thing I've ever done two-parter is is JFK, and I could have did more than two. I could honestly do like a 10-part series on the Zodiac Killer. I mean, there's just so much information, like so much, and I try to keep my podcast to a certain time. I'm not going to just make this a three-hour podcast. So there's a lot. I'm going to try, basically, try to summarize the most important parts. If you want to do some digging, you know, there's always free to do your own digging, go down the wormholes. But like I said, I could talk about this forever. So some small details that we'll skip. We're just going to go through the majority. But I wanted to set the scene of how this all started. So as you can think, this is in a small town. The small town's going crazy. Everyone is super confused. They do have a couple of leads that end up coming off to nothing, but months and months go by and this case is going absolutely nowhere. And honestly, like I said, if this guy just wanted to commit this one crime and disappear, he would have been able to do it. Um, There was no, like they said, there was leads. People saw certain cars, certain things, but nothing to get you close to a specific person. There's obviously no security cameras or anything. If he wanted to do this as a one-time incident and get away with it, he would have been free. But as we know, with these type of people and this specific story, they usually don't stop at one. So remember that this happened, the first one happened on December of 1968. And from there, there was a little bit of, at least from what we know or can confirm, there's a little bit of silence. It's not until about midnight on July 4th of 1965, 1969, sorry, We have Darlene Farron and Michael McGue. Um, They drove into the Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, basically four miles away from the Herman Road site from the first murder. And they sat and parked. The, The couple sat in Darlene's car and a second car drove into the lot and parked beside them, stopped for a second and then immediately drove away. Then about 10 minutes later, the second car comes, but this time parks behind them. The driver of the second car then exit the vehicle, approaching the passenger side of Darlene's car, carrying a flashlight and a nine millimeter gun. The killer directed the flashlight into Michael's and Darlene's eyes before shooting both of them, firing five times. Both victims were hit and several bullets passed through Michael and into Darlene. The killer walked away from the car, but upon hearing Michael's moaning, returned and shot each victim twice more before driving off. 
Now, this is where it gets interesting. On July 5th, 1969, at about 12.40 a.m., so about 40 minutes after, a man calls in to the Vallejo Police Department to report and claim responsibility for this attack. Then, this is where it gets interesting, the caller also took credit for the murders of Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday six and a half months earlier. The police traced the phone call to a phone booth at a gas station um, not too far from Darlene's home and only a few blocks away from the police department. Um, that night, Darlene was pronounced dead at the hospital. Um, Michael actually survived this. I'm not sure how, but he survived the attack despite being shot in the face, neck, and chest. He described his attacker as 26 to 30, 195 to 200 pounds, possibly more, and about five foot eight, white male with short hair, light brown, curly hair. And that is when things really begin to take off, which is like I said at the beginning. If he wanted to do this, he could have got away with the first one. Probably just as easily would have got away with the second one. But this person specifically wanted to be attached to this and on top of this he confessed to this and in the midst of the first one no one would have ever connected the two they just would have thought it was just two random horrible incidents but he goes out of his way to make sure they know that these are connected and that's when things really even more begin to take off and this is where his first letter infamous letter comes in on august 1st 1969 three letters that were made by the killer were received by the vallejo times herald the san francisco chronicle and the san francisco examiner basically their exact same letter obviously i think they're handwritten or whatever so they basically say the same thing look almost identical and this was described by a psychiatrist to have been written by quote someone you would expect to be brooding and isolated this person took credit for the shootings at lake herman road in blue rock springs each letter also included one-third of a 408-symbol cryptogram, which the killer claimed contained his identity. The killer demanded they be printed on each paper's front page or he would, quote, cruise around all weekend killing people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. So the Chronicle published its third of the cryptogram on page four of next day's edition. Um, on August 7th, 1969, another letter was received by the San Francisco Examiner um, with a salutation that says, quote, Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. This moment right here on August 7th is the first time that the killer had used this name for identification. So basically, most times people, the media names these serial killers or these famous people, but he's like, no, I'm a name myself. And this is when he refers to himself as the zodiac this letter was a response to chief Stills' request for more details that would prove he had killed faraday jensen and farah the zodiac included details about the murder that had not yet been released to the public as well as a message to the police that when they crack the code quote they will have me so like i said i mean definitely i mean it's smart by by these magazines or newspapers to hey we need proof or you anybody can just say they did it so once he actually proves that it is him with details then things really you know they really start taking it seriously on august 8th 1969 donald and betty harnold of salinas california cracked the 408 symbol cryptogram 
It contained a misspelled message in which the killer seemed to reference, quote, the most dangerous game. The author also has also said that he was collecting slaves for the afterlife. Um, don't really know what that means, but that's basically what this was referencing. No name appears in this decoded text. And the killer said that he would not give away his identity because it would slow down or stop his slave collection or whatever. Um, but that is the first basically cryptograms that were sent out in August of 1969. Then we, he starts back up on September 27th, 1969 Pacific union college students, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard, um, were picnicking on a small Island, um, in the California area. Um, this is when a white man, about 5'11", more than 170 pounds, approached them wearing a black executioner-style hood with sunglasses and a bib-like device on his chest and had a white 3x3-inch cross circle symbol on it. He approached them with the gun, um, and the hooded man claimed to, claimed to be an escaped convict from a jail with a two-word name in either Colorado or Montana, where he had killed a guard and... Subs okay, I don't even know what the fuck is going on. So now we jump to September 27, 1969. Pacific Union College students Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard are picnicking on a small island, um, basically in Twin Oak Ridge. This is when a man about five feet, 11 inches, weighing more than 170 pounds, approached them wearing a black ex executioner style hood with sunglasses and a bib like device on his chest. He approached them with a gun. The hooded man claimed to be an escaped convict from a jail in either Colorado or Montana, where he had killed a guard and apparently stole a car explaining that he now needed their car and money to travel to Mexico, which is just bizarre. Um, but the killer had brought pre-cut links of plastic clothesline and told Shepard to tie Brian up. The killer checked and tightened Brian's um, basically cuffs after discovering that Cecilia had purposely left his hands loose. Um, now, Brian initially believed this is just to be some crazy, bizarre robbery and things were going to be fine. But the man drew a knife and stabbed both of them. Brian suffered six and Cecilia suffered 10 wound, knife wounds during the process. Um, this killer then hiked 500 yards back up to Knoxville Road, drew um, some a cross circle symbol, which the, the Zodiac symbol, if you know what that is, basically the circle with the line through it, his symbol. He puts it on their car and writes underneath it, Vallejo 12-20-68-7-4-69, September 27th, 69-6-30 by knife. And basically, if that sounds confusing, the first one, 12-20, was the first murder. 7-4 was the second one. And then now he's writing, the, literally this exact day, he's basically leaving what his murders in a list He's basically carving it into the car, if you don't understand what that means. So 
at 740, the killer calls the Napa County Sheriff's Office from a pay telephone to report this crime. Again, like I said, he wants them to know that he's the one committing this crime. Um, the caller first stated to the operator that he wished to, quote, report a murder. No, a double murder before stating that he had been the perpetrator of the crime. Like I said, they were able to trace it, but the phone was found still off the hook minutes later at the Napa car wash. Um, only again, a few blocks from the sheriff's office, detectives were able to lift a palm print from the telephone, but they were never able to match it to any suspect. So, you know, if you get the gist of what's going on, this dude is committing crimes. And now at this point, he's committing the crimes and basically writing a list of his crimes at the crime scene. So they know it's him. And just in case they're not sure. He calls the sheriff's office to let them know that he did it. And he's doing this every time he does it. He's only doing it a few blocks from the police station. I don't know the layout of the areas he's in, but I don't know if he could actually see the police station where he is. But this man, like, it's just a different level. It's an adrenaline rush, basically. It's evil, but it's an adrenaline rush for him. Like He's calling and he wants to make sure, like, okay, he knows they're going to trace this. I'm going to put myself so close to the police station that I'm barely even going to be able to get away. And like I said, when they got there, the it was still off the hook. Like, I mean, he was literally probably not far away. Like this man was on a huge adrenaline rush to not get caught, but make it as close as possible to get caught. Then two weeks later on October 11, 1969, a white male passenger entered a cab driven by Paul Stein at the intersection of Macy and Geary Street in San Francisco, requesting to be driven to Washington and Maple Streets in Presido Heights. For unknown reason, Paul drove one block past Maple Street to Cherry Street. Um, once he stops, the passenger then shoots Paul Stein once in the head with a nine millimeter handgun, takes Stein's wallet and keys and takes and tears off a part of the driver's shirt um which this is the most interesting they're all sad in it but this one is the most interesting just because like we're not talking about like these other ones were just like one was on the island one was you know on a little back road we're talking about just a regular street in san francisco california so this was observed by three teenagers across the street at 9.55 p.m., and they phoned the police while the crime was in progress. They observed a man wiping the cab down before walking away one block to the north. Two blocks from the crime scene, patrol officers Don Falk and Eric Zelms are responding to the call. They observe a white man walking along the sidewalk east on Jackson Street and stepping onto a stairway leading up to the front yard of just a random home on the street. Um, this was a quick encounter, like a five second thing. They just see a white, a white male walking into the house. Um, the police officer estimated it was a white male to be about 35 to 45, five ten, with a crew cut similar to, but slightly older than the description that was provided by the teenagers who observed this, murder happened like 10 minutes ago but the problem here's the problem the teenagers described the suspect to be 25 to 30 with the crew cut standing approximately five foot eight to five foot nine however the rate the police officer dispatcher told the 
officers on duty that were out there that the suspect was black. Now, I'm not sure what happened here. I'm honestly not sure. We're not going to go into too much of a talk about it. But Falk and Zales, the two police officers, drive past the perpetrator without stopping. And from what we know, which um, now, that was the Zodiac killer. Like I said, this was on a main street in the middle of San Francisco. This dude's just walking around. And if this dispatcher had said a white male with this description, the Zodiac killer would have been caught right there on October 11th, 1969. But for whatever reason, I don't know. The dispatcher says it's a black male and the Zodiac killer literally walks right by the police. And I mean, like I said, this case, like you say, we don't get entertainment from these things because they're sad stories. These people have families, but just there's so, just so many things that are surrounded by this case. Like I said, I could talk about this case for literally for hours. There's just so much that I can't cover. But like I said, this specific one, like to know the police officer looked right at the Zodiac killer walking into a home, not even on the run, just walking like nothing's wrong. And because of some miscommunication with the dispatcher, this man somehow gets off. While all this was going on, the thought of Zodiac wasn't even in anybody's mind. Except the previous two had happened, one had happened to couples, and, and two, one happened in the island, one happened on like a back road. This was just a random cab driver in San Francisco. So nobody was even thinking about Zodiac, which he would knew he knew that. So he went ahead and sent on October 13th, sent a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle claiming credit for the killing and saying that he has a part of Stein's bloody shirt to prove this fact. Um, at the time, also, the three teen witnesses also came back to work with the police sketch artist to work on a composite sketch of the killer. And this composite sketch is the sketch. Like, there's only one sketch of the Zodiac killer. I mean, there's probably a couple, but you know you know what you mean if you know this case. If you don't, if you just Google Zodiac killer sketch, is the first one. It'll be the first one. This is how we come about the big composite sketch, which doesn't really do much. Um, they don't; it doesn't end up helping. But this is the first actual, somewhat face we can put to the Zodiac killer. Then, on October fourteenth, nineteen sixty-nine, the Chronicle received another letter from the Zodiac. This time, actually containing a part of Paul Stein's shirt, bloody shirt, as proof that he was the killer. This also included a threat about killing school children on a school bus. And there was for no reason. Like he, the previous threat he had made was if you don't post what I need you to post, then I will kill people. This was no rhyme or reason. He just said, basically he was going to shoot out the front tire of a school bus and pick off the kids one by one as they come out of their school buses. And obviously this dude has kept his word for everything else um has been truthful so you have no choice but to listen to him so this just causes absolute fear chaos all throughout san francisco like i think some parts they did close school down most people where schools were open they just took their kids to school i mean i don't blame them at all like you have to take this seriously and nothing thankfully ever did happen no school bus shootings or no school bus tires were ever shot out. I don't think he ever intended to do it. I just think he just was just evil and just wanted to provide a scare. Um, so during that period of time, like I said, there was just 
no one was really riding the school bus because they were just scared that the Zodiac was out there and their bus was going to be the one. Um, I'm not sure how long that actually went on, but I know that week or that month or so was super, super intense. Then on November 8th, 1969, the Zodiac mailed a card with another cryptogram containing 348 characters. This cipher is dubbed Z340, and this is the cipher that has been unsolved for over 51 years. Now, which we'll get into here in a minute, at the current moment, as of a week ago, we actually do think that this has been solved, but at this moment, but up until about a week ago, this cipher that he sent um, was the big one that no one could ever figure out. Then on November 9th, 1969, the Zodiac mailed a seven page letter stating that took two policemen stopped and actually spoke with him three minutes after he shot Stein. And we already know this because we talked about it um, because of the miscommunication. So we knew that we they saw him, but we didn't know that they actually stopped and talked to him, um, which is just makes the whole thing even more crazy. Like, yeah, they saw them, but no, they went up to this guy. Basically, probably said, uh, hey, have you seen anything in the area? Have you seen a black male in this area? Zodiac says no. And they wish him goodbye. Like they're literally standing right there in front of the Zodiac killer. And he ends up getting away, of course. So those three, the three cases that we talked about are the only three that are confirmed to be with the Zodiac. As I keep saying, this is a wormhole that you could go down and do like 60 episodes on. There's tons of other cases that are, we think, are suspected to be to the Zodiac, but was no evidence or he never admitted it. We just, the way that his kind of, the way he murders was kind of similar. So there's lots of ones out there, also in the area, also Lake Tahoe area that we think is him, but we don't know. So I'm only going to cover the three that were confirmed, but more than likely, I would say I highly doubt it was only three. In addition, he kept in contact with the newspaper articles all the way up until 1974. That's the interesting part, especially throughout 19, the 1970, 1970, 1971. He would, he was just talking. Like, I don't think he had any friends, probably wasn't married. Um, and they still wanted the attention. So even if he wasn't committing murders, he was just needed someone to talk to. So he was still sending letters to newspapers all the way up until 1974. The final Zodiac letter was on January 29th, 1974. Not anything crazy. Um, basically talking about a movie. He says the exorcist is the best satirical comedy that I've ever seen. Um, like I said, I just think he actually just needed someone to talk to. Now there are some suspicious copycat letters that came after that, but the police don't really think, think that they're more like fake copycat prank type things. I guess the style and lettering was different. Um, so the last confirmed one from the Zodiac is 1974. And just like there's tons of cases, there are uh, just a gazillion million thousand different people that are speculated to be the zodiac killer i mean this is a wormhole you could go down i mean i could just name off just names i mean people have said charles manson um someone wrote a book about um a man named 
Arthur Lee Allen, which was a lot of people up until last week came and thought it was. I mean, there's just so many. Like I said, I'm here to basically give you a summary. And if you think it's interesting, you can go down a wormhole. But that gave you the gist of it. But like I said, there's just everybody. I mean, it's the Zodiac. Then there's this one guy who just swears on everything that his dad was a Zodiac killer. There's a whole biography on that. I can't remember the name of that um, that um, movie or autobiography, whatever. I uh, can't think of the name of it. But like I said, there's this dude that just swears on everything. His dad's Zodiac killer. But um, mainly, I just think he wants it to be because he's just, you listen to him, he's just crazy. Like I said, I mean, this is just, just so much going on on this case. Nothing... Like you, if you look hard enough, you can find something. Like if you look at these ciphers, like say you can, if you don't know what they look like, they're just like just codes. Like this letter, this sign, supposed to mean this letter. If you, you if you want it to be something, you can do it pretty easily. Like if you want it to say, "Oh, this is my dad," you can this you can make it happen. Like the ciphers, no one knows what they mean. So you can make it mean whatever you want to fit your agenda. So tons of people just think they have solved it. Um, and up until October 6th of last year, of this year, um, we had nothing concrete. And let it be known that this case is still unsolved. This case, what I, what everybody in the news is talking about is not the actual police. The police do not think this is actually true. Their investigation is still open and saying that this is coincidence. So TMZ and all these headlines were basically running with articles saying that the mystery of the Zodiac has been solved when this is not the the case is still open. So basically, we have these people called the case breakers, and it's a team of like 40 former law enforcement investigators. They basically tackle mysteries like D.B. Cooper, Jimmy Hoffa, things that we've covered. Um and they have been working on the Zodiac case for like 10 years. And they are now saying that they have identified the Zodiac killer as Gary Francis Posta. Um, I may have butchered that last name. Probably this man passed away in 2018. He said they spent years of digging forensic evidence, um, finding photos from his like basement. Um, one image features scars on the forehead that match the scars that are were on the sketch of the Zodiac. Um, other clues include deciphering letters sent by the Zodiac that revealed his name, that revealed his, that name as the killer. Um, and there's a bunch of other stuff. Um, according to a CIA FBI memo, um, they state that the Zodiac six victim was a co-ed that was murdered in Riverside, California. And this guy, the Gary Post, um, killed someone by the name of Cherry Joe Bates um, in Riverside, California, on the in the exact year that the FBI states that the Zodiac also killed. So... There's a lot there. Like I said, the only thing they don't have, which they're trying to get, is DNA evidence. They have some other. They have, they have the DNA from the Cherry Joe Bates. That's the person that was killed in 1966. They do have the DNA for that. They want the Vallejo County sheriffs to basically compare it so that we can see. Okay, is this guy's DNA on her 
Because if it is, then you solved it. I don't know what has happened since then, but it adds up. Like I said, when it comes to these ciphers and stuff, you can kind of finagle things to try to make it sound the way you want to sound. But honestly, I believe they have a pretty good case. Like I said, especially this whole FBI memo thing and the um, all that stuff. It's it's a it's it's a nice case, but a lot of the um, a lot of these wormholes you go down can have a good case so like i said people are running this as the zodiac has been solved but the police are still saying that it's open out of all the i've been down all the wormholes like i said you can go down the wormholes if you want i've been down all the wormholes this one is definitely the best one that i've seen um it's only literally it's just happened last week um hopefully as more information comes out i can do some digging i am not going to say that it is solved because like I, said, I don't know enough um, I don't know their case files. I just know the little bit that they've given us, but it is interesting. Um, and it could be it. Um, they could have actually solved it. So we're not talking about just some amateurs. We're talking about actual pros that have don't just put out garbage. Like they only put stuff out if they've done years of digging said and research. Um, so this could actually be it. Um, there's no way to actually know until, like I said, the, local sheriffs actually give the dna and compare it and like i said i'm assuming they're gonna do it i don't see why not it's been going on since 1969 you can't been able to do anything else someone gives you this i mean you gotta at least try so basically we'll sit and wait these things take forever this thing's something they just do tomorrow these things honestly take months so if anything comes back on this whether it confirms or denies it, you know, I'll do a follow-up episode or maybe my beginning story of the week. I'll do a follow-up on it. But like I said, this is the best that we have so far since 1969. So we'll sit and wait. But if not, someone is still out there. Like I said, this person died in 2018. It's a good chance that this Zodiac person has passed away by the year 2021. But then again, they could be walking among us right now. That is all I got for today. Really hope you enjoyed this episode. Maybe learned something new or just encouraged you to go do some digging on this. Like I said, there's just so much to talk about. Um, 45 minutes is nowhere near enough time. So if this got your interest, do some digging, go on YouTube. Or as always, you can hit me up on Twitter at underscore Patrick Simpson. If you want some links or some direction or some YouTube videos, I can go ahead and point you to any of kind of source material things that I look through myself. So you can do your own digging. Or if you have your own theories or any other things I missed or didn't cover, as always, feel free to hit me up. If you haven't left a review um, just on Apple or iTunes, just take a quick second and leave an honest review. It's been a good minute. Got some new people that will be coming in to listen. And your feedback will be graciously appreciated. And we'll be back next Monday with a great new episode. My name is Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranoia.